Welcome to the Dense City Podcast, a show that discusses academic articles and books on the topic of cities with the researchers who write them. I'm your host, Becca Mares. On today's episode, we welcome Dr. Liana Patrick, an assistant professor at Simon Fraser University in the Faculty of Health Sciences. Her research focuses on indigenous health and justice, urban indigenous community planning, and institutional change through decolonizing education. The research we're talking about today is her paper entitled The Power of Connections, How a Novel Canadian Men's Wellness Program is Improving the Health and Well-Being of Indigenous and Non-Indigenous Men. This paper was published in the International Indigenous Policy Journal, and I just want to reference her fellow authors in the paper, Elora Dannen-Efmanoff, Vivian Yosefsky, Paul Gross, Sandy Lambert, and Vicki Smee. Thank you so much, Liana, for coming on to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I, um, I'm so glad that you're coming to talk to us about Dudes Club and your paper that was published in the International Indigenous Policy Journal. So how about you start off um, by explaining to the audience what Dudes Club is? Sure, I, I will do that. And I'm, I'm just going to start also by um, giving a little bit of an introduction to where I'm from, in, in part because that really informs the things that I do and, and the research that I, um, that I engage in. Uh, so I'm a member of the Stellaten First Nation in the North Interior of BC. Um, and we're, we're part of the Dakel Nation and my, uh, my mom, on my mom's side, I'm Acadian and Scottish uh, and mm. she's from Cape Breton Island. So I, I grew up in both of these places, um, mm. but you know, I moved to the city at a young age. So I grew up primarily off of, um, outside of my territory, outside of Dakel territory. Um, but I retain strong, you know, community and family connections. So I think this has always been a part of my research and my worldview and how I approach my work. Um, and I think it's, it's part of what really drew me to Dudes Club. Um, so, so what is Dudes Club? Dudes Club is, um, it's a really unique um, and, and interesting men's health and wellness um, model that first started in 2010. And um, while it is open to all men, it's, it's very much um, developed into an indigenous men's health and, and wellness model. Uh, and I wanted to give a little bit of background as well as to where, um, what inspired Dudes Club. And it started out of Vancouver Native Health Society in Vancouver's downtown east side. And it was started by, um, by, by two men. Uh, Richard Johnson and Paul Gross. And Paul is a doctor who um, works now with Kalala Leilum Health Center. And Richard was working, was, um, I think he was a, a, like a peer mentor, peer leader, um, working with Vancouver Native Health. And they both recognized the need for some sort of men's wellness programming to take place. And they were really inspired 
by the Black Barbershop model, which okay. started in the United States, yeah, in the LA mm. area. And it, it was a recognition that African-American men were not accessing health services and they needed to take those, um, you know, they needed to take it to where the men felt safe and comfortable. Um, and that was at the barbershop. So um, it was a really inspiring model. Um, and they, it was really about creating um, a sense of safety and connection um, for men to be able to engage with their health. Um, so they saw this sort of Vancouver Native Health Society, and then it lacked this community atmosphere and figured this barbershop model was the way to to fill this need and this gap yeah yeah I think because and, and I'll get into it in a little bit about you know the the research and the literature around men's health but you know there's there's just a um you know there's a real gap in terms of um of men accessing health services for for a whole bunch of reasons um which I'll also talk about but um, they felt that this was a really promising model. And, and you know, since 2010, since this started, um, it's, it's expanded in a really big way, um, uh, particularly in Northern BC uh, through a partnership with the First Nations Health Authority. And there's around 40 sites in British Columbia and then two across the country. Um, so it's just a model that's really taken off um, and has you know, shown a lot of interest. Mm -hmm. And what exactly mm -hmm. does the Dudes Club do? <laughs> I mean, I think the, the answer is sort of woven throughout, um, you know, the, the kind of the findings from this paper, but, but essentially um, it, when it started, they, it, it started in Vancouver, as I mentioned, on the downtown east side, and they met every two weeks. And it, um, it was really, I think, I think the key thing to understand about Dudes Club is that it's really um, about, there's this common phrase, nothing about us without us. And I think this is what the men were really feeling, that there were programs and services and things, but nothing that really they had control of or a role in creating or being a part of. So, so self-determination in the club was really important. So there's, there's a, a think tank that meets every week and the men decide on the topics that they're going to um, talk about at the dudes club meeting. Um, so when they when they actually meet uh they were, and they were really lucky to have paul dr gross because he attended every meeting and he would um you know he works in in a really good way um with the men and and has a you know a really um high level of understanding of the community and of um of what the the challenges um, and barriers that the men face. So, um, so the men would decide on what health topic they would talk about. And then at the dudes club meeting, they would, you know, they would, they would have Dr. Gross there and he would talk about the health topic, but importantly, they would also have like people, um, cooking dinner. So they would share a meal together. Um, mm. and nobody would have to wait in a lineup for the meal. Yeah. Everybody's served. Everybody sits down. Um, you know, there's like, it, there's games that they play, there's, um, there's different things that kind of happen to pave the way for the, the health topic that's going to be discussed about. And then the men just, you know, have open discussion about whatever that health topic is. Um, so that's, that's generally like the format that, um, that it started out with. But, you know, since it started, so when I came on, um, I was brought on in, I guess, 2015, 
to, um, to be part of a, an evaluation of the Dudes Club. And it was actually sponsored through Movember Canada. And part of the intent was to, you know, just to evaluate um, and see the impact of the program on the health and well-being of the men who attended, who were primarily Indigenous men. Um, and but also to expand it um, as a possible model to to other sites. So that's when it expanded up to Prince George and Smithers. And then there was also one in Morristown, which is a reserve community now called Whitset, just outside of Smithers. And so once it once that expansion started and um, and then, of course, the partnership with the First Nations Health Authority, you know, the types of events and activities that the dudes started doing really also shifted and changed. Um, so lots of land based activities, you know, getting out and um, and just doing, um, you know, going out to the lakes and going out to the forest and um, and just doing, you know, different kinds of things that that were in line with what the communities wanted to do. So, um, so I feel, you know, that's another really key part about Dudes Club is just the, that this is not a model that says, this is what you need to do and this is how you do it. Yeah. That it's really adapted for each of the communities and really led at a grassroots level. Mm -hmm. Not as prescriptive as it is an organic coming together of a community. Exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what motivated you to, to research Dudes Club? You know, you got, approached as, as in terms of evaluating and and mm -hmm. someone to analyze the program um did you think oh yeah that sounds like a great program I'd love to be a part of it how did how did that work yeah so when, when I um it was actually it was a job posting <laughs> that I saw and when I saw the job ad I thought this sounds like me this is my thing mm -hmm. um and but they, they didn't say what the program was until I got in oh, touch with them and then when they responded and they said it was dudes club I was really excited because mm -hmm. um it was actually I had heard about dudes club at that point mm -hmm. um and it had a really good reputation for being just a really innovative um and, and one of the very few programs that were available for indigenous men specifically mm -hmm. um and at the time I was in the middle of my PhD research. And so my PhD research was also centered primarily in the downtown east side. I was working with the Native Port Workers and Counseling Association of BC, who work with indigenous people in the justice system. Um, and I particularly worked with the health team who um, do counseling and, and lots of cultural based programming. Um, mm -hmm. and, and one of the things that I had been, that I had heard a lot was that men leaving prison did not have a lot um, in terms of support and services. And mm -hmm. so, um, so Dudes Club was one of those. So I was really um, excited. And, you know, it's interesting because I, I didn't specifically have a gender lens in my research. And I think, you know, that's for a few reasons. But, and, and as it just turned out, I ended up actually um, interviewing a lot of men through this, mm -hmm. through this process. Um, so it just, my, my evaluation work sort of melded in with my doctoral research and it's continued on as well, um, which I can, I can talk about in a little bit. Yeah, we can talk about that later. Yeah. Um, and then, so what was the purpose of this study and mm -hmm. this evaluation specifically? Yeah, so it was to um, evaluate the experiences of the Dudes Club members, um, of the elders who were um, a part of the clubs, uh, the healthcare providers and, and other professionals as well, just to, to um, 
yeah, to see what what their experiences were over the, the five years with, with the program and to extend it into those communities I mentioned, into Prince George and Smithers. Um, and also do, it was a three-year evaluation. So we were able to extend it into the communities and also evaluate with um, Prince George and Smithers, which was important because the Northern urban context is, is different than, than the Vancouver context. So um, we wanted to do that. And, and we you know, came up with policy recommendations for, for people who were you know, interested in creating their own dudes clubs as well. What was the difference between the the northern context versus the Vancouver context? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think you know. I think there were there were a lot of commonalities, absolutely, um, in terms of the men's experiences of of you know structural and systemic inequities of their mm-hmm. experiences of um, social marginalization of um, you know uh, all the things that that I can talk about in terms of the background and the literature. Yeah. Um, but, but I think some of the differences were that there is even less in terms of the availability of these, um, um, of, of resources, you know, the challenges are just seem to be heightened. For example, like transportation, you know, mm-hmm. if, if they want to, you know, the sort of housing is more spread out is in Prince yeah. George, for example. Um, and the location of the dudes club was downtown. So trying to, you know, get from their housing at, and particularly at certain times of the day when the men might not feel as safe being in certain areas. So there was, there were lots of, um, there were lots of issues like that. And I, I, all of, you know, I think all of the men experienced some form of racism and discrimination. Um, and in, I, I mean, I, I don't want to, necessarily say that somebody's was greater than others but it seemed to be really very much immediate in in the north and um and it might be because they didn't necessarily the men in the north didn't necessarily have the same kind of community um that the men in the downtown east side did um even though again they all experience some forms of marginalization discrimination by these Mm -hmm. systems but um, it just, it felt, um, yeah, it, it, there was an intensity to that experience mm-hmm. that, um, we particularly felt, I think, in Prince George and in Smithers. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, not as much research or resources mm-hmm. going into different Northern communities than there is the downtown East side per se. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, mm-hmm. there's both challenges and, um, opportunities when, when everything is really concentrated in, in mm-hmm. one area, right? um as as it is in the downtown east side and also mm-hmm. just up north there's not necessarily as many healthcare providers who are available who have the knowledge and the willingness to yeah. to to you know participate in something like dudes club so mm-hmm. i know finding finding healthcare professionals is also a big challenge yeah yeah it's interesting even how in vancouver because it's so dense in the downtown east side, you have, you know, perhaps certain problems are, are heightened more than others. Um, but you have something like walkability that, that everyone uh, loves to get on board with. Um, but you still have all of these other problems that are omnipresent. Um, and walkability doesn't solve those problems at all. It, it just brings us closer together. Um, but we have to take that next step uh, when we're closer together and have the resources to enable programs like this. That's right. 
Yeah. So then walk us through some of the background literature on the topic. Yeah, so we were um, really drawing on a couple of different sources of, um, of research to to kind of to examine a lot of the experiences of, um, of the men in the dudes club. So I think a lot of people um, would probably be aware that um, indigenous peoples in not just in Canada, but you know, around the world um, have experienced, you know, a disproportionate burden of, of mental and physical health issues. And this, you know, you, you see this repeatedly in the literature in terms of the overrepresentation in, um, in, in often negative health statistics. Um, and, and so I think if you were just to look at those negative health statistics, you might kind of construct an idea about the health of Indigenous peoples that sort of reduces their experiences to individual, some sort of individual, you know, dysfunction or even... Yeah, like the individual's problem. Yeah, yeah or even, even the mm. community, but there's just something fundamentally yeah. wrong. Um, and that's often, that's, that's mm. actually how Indigenous health has been looked at for a really long time. But I would say in the last maybe 20 mm. or 30 years, those, that perspective um, has really, has really shifted. And um, and, and more researchers have really come to look at those inequities in terms of um, the impacts of, of uh, colonial practices and policies that have had a huge mm-hmm. impact on, on Indigenous people's physical and mental, emotional, spiritual well-being and health. So mm-hmm. like residential mm-hmm. schools. Yeah. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, uh, really well known in Canada, I would say is the the residential school system that you know operated for 150 years in Canada and removed children from their families mm-hmm. from their communities to um, to live in in um, at residential school and often those places were places mm-hmm. of um, physical mental emotional sexual abuse and this has been really widely mm-hmm. uh, documented and is very well known through the Truth and Reconciliation Commission yeah. and people can have access to that research and really get to understand that experience. Um, and, and then a continuation of those policies really was the 60s scoop where children from the 60s up until, you know, the 80s or maybe even 50s to 80s were, um, removed from their families and adopted into non-Indigenous households and often Mm -hmm. far removed from their home territories. And, and a lot of people call the child welfare system now, um, even worse than the residential schools. There are more children in care now in Canada than ever attended residential schools. So, this continuation yeah. of, um, of, 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 of the experiences of colonization. Um, and, and so, you know, all of those cumulative impacts have a, you know, reflect in, in terms of, of the health and well-being of communities. Mm-hmm. So in response to that, um, you know, we have like, for example, in British Columbia, we have the First Nations Health Authority, which took over responsibility yeah. for health for on-reserve Indigenous people from Health Canada. And their, you know, mm-hmm. their big impetus is to return healthcare to the communities as being a source mm-hmm. of health and well-being. And so a lot of self-determination in Indigenous health governance. And, and a big mm-hmm. part of what their work is, is recognizing that culture is a really important source of strength for Indigenous communities and recovering, mm-hmm. you know, what was lost by policies like, you know, residential school, but, but all sorts of other legislative um, and, and political actions mm-hmm. that have resulted in, in disconnection from land and culture. 
so then we, we also were, you know, really interested in looking at men's health research and, you know, in, mm-hmm. in, in general, um, not just indigenous men, but non-indigenous men, we found in the research are less likely, for example, to seek medical attention than women. Um, you know, and this is reflected in, in suicide rates, you know, uh, some of the research uh, from statistics, statistics Canada shows that men are three times more likely to die by suicide than women. Um, Indigenous men are at even higher risk for suicide. So we, we yeah. see this reflected um, in that. And, um, and, and yet in spite of these inequities, there's really, there's, there's a huge lack of research into Indigenous men's health services in Canada specifically. Um, there's international research on different um, programs like indigenous, like Men's Sheds, which is a program that has come out of Australia. Um, and it's, you know, there are some early indications that they, they have some pretty effective health programming for men, uh, not necessarily geared at indigenous men though. Um, so into all of this, you know, we, we kind of brought all this literature to, to bear mm-hmm. on what we were looking at with our with the dudes club. Yeah, I guess it's similar to, you know, this collective trauma experienced by Indigenous peoples across Canada and, you know, having health so closely tied to your living, your your life and your your collective community and, you know, what healthcare system is equipped mm-hmm. <laughs> to deal with that trauma when they have absolutely no idea or experience of that trauma? Absolutely. And, you know, this is um, just to briefly reflect on my work before I came into my PhD was I worked mm-hmm. in the faculty of medicine and yeah. um, in the division of Aboriginal people's health. So we created curriculum and workshops and, um, and different programs for healthcare professionals and particularly doctors and medical students. Um, but one of the things that I just, I really came to very much understand is that, you know, you, you are a product of your training and, and the exposure mm-hmm. you've had to, um, to the topics. So for a lot of our, the healthcare professionals, like this is, yeah, they're, they have very specialized clinical training and they don't necessarily mm-hmm. have exposure to, to these you know, these types of issues. So it makes sense that the healthcare cannot respond adequately. Sure. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I can even think in terms of, you know, if a textbook or different medical students think that, you know, women don't, women who are black do not experience pain as mm-hmm. much as white women, like that is completely false. Mm-hmm. But it's a something that's perpetuated in medical textbooks and in culture mm-hmm. right and and plays out in such negative ways and and uh, demeans a whole portion of the population yeah exactly exactly mm-hmm. and 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 yeah so i think that um i think this you know this is what actually drew me to uh to community and regional planning um, was taking a planning perspective because I feel like you know the history of planning is deeply um, embedded with public health, right? Because in the early days of planning, planning and public health were were you know um, were were mutually reinforced because 
because of the nature of living in close quarters together with each other. Right. Um, Planning was a result of poor public health, right? Or it was an excuse, uh, you know, to displace people from living in close quarters so that we could all be healthier. Yes. Yeah. But healthier. Who (laughs) is to be healthier, right? In all these garden cities and in England. And yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I think it's, you know, there, there's a whole lens and worldview that, that that those communities are being created through. But nevertheless, there's an understanding that the structures that you create around communities are going to lend themselves to people being well or not. And and so, you know, I, I there's a so what I saw was a huge role for community planners in supporting and promoting the health and well-being of um of, of, of urban indigenous people um, through the choices that they make to, you know, follow these kinds of models or not, you know, or to not be a part of that. Uh, and, and I actually, I, I see this shifting. I do see this shifting. And again, something I can, I can talk about later in terms of findings and future research. Um, I see cities taking on more of a role in like, okay, we have a strong role to play in promoting the health and well-being of people in partnership with health systems, right? I think that's where we have to start to break down these silos and and really, in a meaningful way, understand what it is that everybody does and the kinds of training that people have. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then, what was your methodology that you used to to analyze the Dudes Club? So we actually took, so for the paper that we're talking about, we, um, we focused on the qualitative findings. We also did uh, a survey with 100 um, men uh, connected with the Vancouver uh, Dudes Club, which is reported elsewhere in Canadian Family Physician. Um, but, we, but, but our qualitative findings were really informed by Indigenous and, and critical theoretical perspectives. So we really, you know, we wanted to emphasize the, the experiences, the voices and the narratives of, of the men um, who mm-hmm. participate in the Dudes Club. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and really importantly, we wanted to draw attention to all of those intersecting contexts that, um, that shape men's experiences of health and healthcare. Um, which, yeah, so I wanna, I, I will talk about that kind of intersectionality piece in a minute, but, um, but we, yeah, we collected data from uh, a, approximately 30 club members. We did, we actually did 15 focus groups in three okay. different settings. Um, and then we had interviews with four elders um, and, uh, and yeah, about six or seven health professionals. And so the question that we were asking was how how the, how does club impacts their health and well-being, um, how it compares to other um, groups or um, you know programs or other groups where other programs or other healthcare providers. Yeah, so other programs that might be geared towards them, and and okay. so that and that there wasn't really much to compare it to, <laughs> to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, but that was one of the things we were also interested in, like, what are the other, you know, sources of support that you have? Yeah. Um, and there are groups, like there are men's groups, absolutely, that have been in existence for a long time uh, in some First Nations communities. Um, and But the men, especially men off reserve who might be disconnected from their home community, don't always feel comfortable um, going to those. So this was this was another thing, and I'll get into it in the findings, but just in terms of safety yeah. is really important. 
Um, mm -hmm. And we just wanted to better understand how we could improve that experience. Um, and, and one of our things that we rolled out after was a, a resource toolkit, which I think we call it a knowledge bundle. Um, but for other communities who we kind of collated all of these, all of our findings and, and produced um, something that could help other communities to create a similar thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That seems very helpful. Yes. Yeah, for sure. So walk us through who you spoke to for this study. I would say all of the men in our study um, come from a context of disenfranchisement. So they've, they've you know, experienced unstable housing, um, unemployment and poverty, and, and many also live with um, very complex histories mm -hmm. of trauma and mental health and and addictions yeah. or, or other, you know, substance use issues. And, and so, you know, for those reasons, it's, it's actually um, how a lot of men ended up mm -hmm. living in, in the city or in the urban area, whether they were seeking, yeah. you know, looking for, for work or, or moving with family or, um, you know, for, for all of those various reasons. And so the survey that we did that I mentioned earlier, um, really reflects the population. And I think it's, and we've actually just done, I'm, I'm actually on the board now of the Dudes Club Society, which started, we just became a society this year. Um, and there's a new evaluation that's been done. And, and it's, it's pretty consistent, actually, um, with with today. So more than 80% um, reported living in the downtown east side um, of Vancouver, and, and more than 60% reported experiencing unstable housing, which is pretty, pretty high. And then um, this is in 2015, but the majority of participants in the study um, self-identified as Indigenous, and, and most of them are, um, yeah, middle-aged in the middle years of life. So this was, this was also really telling for us because we were thinking, okay, well, how, you know, what about the younger men? Um, you know, how, how, how can we reach out? How can we kind of bring in a younger um, demographic? And then, you know, it was really important that um, while, you know, three quarters of the participants in that survey were single, um, almost 60% had children and less than 5% lived with their children. So there was a huge disconnection from family and children as well that we felt was a really important aspect. So, yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting to note. So walk us through your findings. You had four main themes. So one was brotherhood and community. The next was accessible health, uh, healthcare information, um, disrupting colonial constructions of masculinity, and then systemic and structural changes. So how about we start with that, that first one of brotherhood and, and community? Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as, as I mentioned, that feeling of connection and community is, um, is, is really important. You know, when the men are isolated and alone is when things really fall apart. Um, mm -hmm. so the fact that they had a place where they could go, right. That's, that's one yeah. is to have a place to go. But I think if that place that they went, didn't feel safe and wasn't a, a space where they knew that the rules of confidentiality could be respected, it wouldn't matter. I think, so it's not just any space, it's a space where they can, where they can go and they can actually, you know, it was really moving to hear men talk about how they shared their experiences, 
um, some one uh, person in particular had never shared that they had been sexually abused and mm-hmm. were actually able to share that in a room of yeah. men. And I was thinking about how important this is. Okay. This is kind of an aside, but yeah. there was a film that I watched at the Vancouver International Film Festival called Brother I Cry, which I would highly recommend. Um, really powerful, moving movie. And in it, a young man is part of a healing circle um, in, you know, in, in prison. And right away, I felt like this circle was not safe. And I was scared for this scene. And sure enough, he ends up sharing something that he hadn't shared before and um, about an abuse he had experienced. And a guy made kind of a snide comment about it or a joke about it. And, mm. and everything went to hell, <laughs> you know, yeah. like it was just, it was mm. awful. It was absolutely awful to watch because I have had the great um, honor of witnessing, you know, safe spaces where men were able to talk about things and be supported and, and feel that they could. And this was the exact opposite. So, um, you know, so I just, I really, um, I can't emphasize enough how important th- this is because there are spaces for men to go. They're just not necessarily safe. Um, yep. And then, mm-hmm. as I mentioned earlier, that sense of ownership and self-determination is really yeah. important because, you know, it, there's so little of that in society at large, right? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it really creates that feeling of solidarity and, and connection. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I remember reading throughout the paper that there's this sort of flattened hierarchy where it's Mm -hmm. everybody is is telling each other a story and it's not one person is holds all the power in the room or that you're explaining this to one person but the collective um healing of of that story can be so powerful yes yeah absolutely and um and I think this really uh you know reflects on the the health professionals as well that are brought in. So, I mean, Dr. Gross is like, you know, gets it (laughs) and knows (laughs) knows how to, you know, uh, work, you know, with the men in a way that is completely a fond hierarchy. Um, But that's a really important, that's like one of the key pieces in terms Mm -hmm. of this model is that you're not coming in and and telling people, you know, what they need to do, but you're providing uh, an education piece that fits in with their experiences. Yeah. So th- another example that, you know, sometimes I think about is a nutritionist actually came in to talk to the dudes and they were talking about, oh, it's really important that you eat, you know, broccoli and you eat your vegetables. And, and it's yeah. like, it's great. It's good advice. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, you know, the men don't necessarily have access to yeah. that. And is that what they yeah. need to hear at that point? Just make it, make it useful, useful, understand who you're speaking mm-hmm. with. And, and have opportunity for, the, I mean, the dudes, like, as in any community, they're resourceful, mm-hmm. like, they have figured things out, they know, so drawing on that, you know, wisdom mm-hmm, and knowledge mm-hmm. as well, so, yeah, um, and, and so kind of leading to the second piece, which mm-hmm. is the accessible healthcare mm-hmm. information, um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is kind of a really cool outcome, too, like, you know, mm-hmm. member, like, a lot of dudes club members shared stories about, how um, about their experiences with healthcare and, you know, from everything from being completely stereotyped as addicts as being pain and you know, drug seeking mm-hmm. because they needed a painkiller being really rushed in the office, like not having the time to build up a relationship um, and, and, you know, feeling um, like n- not heard. 
And um, so, you know, this is, this is a big barrier to seeking mm-hmm. treatment when you think that um, you're not going to have a voice in that interaction. Yeah. Um, and so, the, you know, the, that poor treatment and accessibility mm-hmm. paired with kind of constructions of masculinity, which, you know, portray men as being stoic and strong and they don't need help. They can yeah. help themselves. I've made many like really reluctant to seek health care. But, um, but what we found was that, you know, over the years, because, you know, starting in 2010, if you're meeting every couple of weeks, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of health information. And after a few years, a lot of those guys really, you know, knew their stuff. And, and we actually heard about people, um, you know, younger men uh, being on the street and seeing like the dudes club hats and logos and, and being like, yeah, some guy with that logo, he was telling me, you know, that I can get help for this and that. And so it's like this, this really, um, this really nice iterative process where they're learning things and they're sharing with other people. And it, and it's very empowering <laughs> to, to have that knowledge and then to be able to feel that you can go to a place and actually um, get that care, which is what, you know, what the intent of Vancouver Native Health. Uh, yeah, like you said, voicing your concerns in this safe space where people are going to take you seriously um, rather than, you know, needing to advocate for yourself in a healthcare uh-huh. setting. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and so you, the, the third finding around disrupting colonial constructions of masculinity, yeah. um, you know, it's a little bit um, academic-y talk, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, a little bit dense. That's why on Dense City we uh, <laughs> you know, take apart these <laughs> concepts. Yes. Yeah. So t- walk us through colonial constructions of yeah. masculinity and what does one do to disrupt this construction? <laughs> yeah, and no, mm-hmm. none of the men said, "Well, we are trying to disrupt." Yeah, um, <laughs> of course, yeah. definitely mm-hmm. our wording. But I think mm-hmm. I, I don't think that they would disagree, though, um, with kind of what we were what we were seeing and hearing. Um, you know, so the the men in the study, right? They they talked about the reasons that they came to Dudes Club, um, which was to make friends, which was to share um, experiences and feelings, and to get that healthcare information they couldn't get elsewhere. And so I, you know, I would say that colonial constructions of masculinity affect all men. They don't just affect Indigenous. But what ended up happening in terms of Indigenous masculinity is that the, the, the types of um, gender roles that Indigenous you know, um, men and women and two-spirit people in the communities um, had were very different than Eurocentric roles, right? And, and so colonial constructions of masculinity um, have kind of produced this double disruption, I think, in a way. So first of all, it's disrupted the relationships within Indigenous communities themselves, right? And even, even the, the gendered and, um, you know, sexist language of the Indian Act, which is still something that is in effect and that impacts Indigenous peoples, um, you know, it, it created these, um, you know, divisions between men and women before 1980. One, 82, no, 85, sorry, before 1985, um, Indigenous women who married non-Indigenous men lost their status. Indigenous men who married non-Indigenous women, the Indigenous, the non-Indigenous women gained their status. So 
there was this um, there was this really um, violent sexist disruption of relationships that colonial policies mm. brought about. And then at the same time, yeah. indigenous men were completely disempowered and marginalized and um, you know, uh, experienced the same kind of dehumanizing that, that indigenous women did in society. So it's, they weren't set mm. up to, to succeed yeah. and to, um, you know, take on the roles that non-Indigenous men took on in society either. So there's this, um, you know, I think that um, gender violence has has very much um, affected Indigenous, obviously it's had a huge impact on Indigenous women, as we see in the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls, um, you know, the the reports and the, and the, um, uh, the, um, information, you know, everything that's come out through, oh, I'm trying to think of the, the inquiry, um, you know, this, this has been a huge experience and, and Indigenous men have, um, have also been impacted, you know, by, um, by racist um, policies mm -hmm. and exclusion. Um, so, yeah. so I feel like, um, yeah, there is, there's, there's kind of, there's a lot there that, um, you know, that, that needs to be mm -hmm. talked about, that needs to be addressed. And it, it's, it's one of the things that I really love about this project, about this model, um, about this work, is that it's really not just about Indigenous men, it's about Indigenous mm -hmm. women and families and communities, because, you know, each of those roles have been impacted and, and everybody, you know, um, uh, those relationships are um, have been affected, and and by starting to understand how and the intersectional ways in which um, people have been impacted, you can start to I think repair and strengthen um, all of those other relationships. Um, so yeah, so then and that kind of gets into I guess the the systemic and the structural challenges, which I've also talked about uh, as well. Um, you know, like um, the types of things like housing, um, how, how difficult it is to, um, to get into stable housing, to have that, um, you know, a lot of men talked about, you know, being homeless um, and, and just the lack of resources. I mean, it's, it's the affordability, it's, um, and, and I think, you know, it's, it is really interesting to think about it in the context of now and of COVID, because this is a few years ago, um, but, you know, one of, the, one of the big things that was mobilized this year was money for food um, and to, and, and what a, you know, what a difference that makes for people to have access to regular healthy meals. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I mean, this is an area that I don't necessarily research, mm -hmm. um, yeah. but I think it's so massively important in terms of, you know, the role of food banks mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. the private sector to be um, funding something as fundamental as, yeah. as accessing nutritional food. Yeah. Um, and leaving it up to the whims or donations in order mm -hmm. to get something so basic. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a really important yeah. um, 
area mm-hmm. <laughs> for, mm-hmm. for folks to do research. Yeah, in. great thing that there's a whole field <laughs> dedicated <Yes>. to <laughs> food deserts Definitely. or food environments. Yeah. Yeah. And then what yeah. are some of the policy recommendations that you would suggest out of the study? Yeah, I think one of the one of the biggest ones we, you know, we talked to the elders in um, each of the clubs would have one or two elders that provide um, guidance and support and, um, and they're, they just play such an important role. Uh, We had an elder named Henry Charles, who's passed away now. He was from Musqueam and his presence and his um, guidance in terms of language and especially around language, you know, teaching the dudes, even, even men who didn't, you know, who weren't um, Kosalish or Hunkamunum speaking people, they loved um, when, when Henry would talk about language, um, because it just created a sense of pride and a sense of wanting to that connection. So connection Mm. to culture and to, um, you know, I think, I think it's really connected to that sort of um, self-determination, yeah. having, having that ability to um, really express who you are as a human being. Um, that's, you know, that's really what your, what your culture allows you to do and to be. Mm-hmm. Residential school and all of those colonial policies sought to destroy that yeah. in people. Mm-hmm. And so, and that has a profound impact because it defines you, who you are as a human being. So it's not just culture, it's, you know, it's political, yeah. it's, um, it's all of those things. So mm-hmm. um, I think first and foremost, having that be deeply and meaningfully embedded within um, the group is really important, which is why the presence of elders and others is really important. Um, the sense of ownership over the club is also super important. This cannot be a top-down model. <laughs> it can't be administrators saying, this is how you need to run it. And, and then, um, uh, yeah, grounding, grounding the dudes clubs in, in social connection, right, um, is really important. How do you create, how do you create community and social connection? Um, as I mentioned, the opioid overdose crisis, you know, is, is a good example of the absolute, like, life-saving um, function of, of social connection, right? It's a, it's a very visceral, immediate one. But we also heard stories of men who didn't show up to the club, which to the meeting, and, um, and other men were like, oh, what happened to so-and-so? Because they had those connections, and they reached out, and he, you know, he was not doing well. And, and you know, they went over, they, they made sure that they connected with him and brought him back in. And, and somebody said it, like, it saved his life. Um, so it's, it really can't be understated. And I think there's, I think there's some research. Yeah. It's the importance of the social connection in terms of seeing everyone Mm -hmm. daily, even your neighbors, right? If you don't see your neighbors, it's, Mm -hmm. it's really concerning. And then it's something out of the ordinary versus if this program didn't exist, there wouldn't even be that opportunity for, constant connection and social Definitely. connection. And, you know, I'll actually connect this in with the medical system because uh, when I worked in the, in medicine, we, we did these, um, this role-playing, right, where fourth-year medical students would, would role-play being the doctor and we'd have an actor who was a patient. And it was actually some of the hardest work that I, that I did 
um, because we had, I, I, I facilitated one session where it was a pregnant Indigenous woman. And the most important thing with this interaction that we wanted them to get out of it was to create a connection, was to create a relationship with this woman so that she would come back and see the doctor again. And it, that was one of the hardest things <laughs> that we did um, mm -hmm. with that mm -hmm. role playing. And definitely because they didn't have the training to do that. Um, and, and all we wanted, the safest thing, the best thing was that we knew that this woman was going to come back to see that doctor. So it's like, you know, I, I think that you can have these kinds of um, goals, whether it's community planning, whether it's public health planning, or whether it's health service delivery, right? It's that, and it's often looked at as a soft skill that really doesn't have any use or meaning compared to these other um, more important hard skills, um, whether it's clinical or technological or whatever, um, technical, but, um, <laughs> but they're actually, they're actually very foundational. Yeah. Like the soft skills can change someone's life, right? If mm -hmm. someone cares about mm -hmm. you and your well-being, then it can make the world of difference. I think even, you know, you're walking on the street and someone says, hi, <laughs> when you're having a really bad day, that could make the world of difference, right? Like taking something mm -hmm. so small and that everyone can experience and transferring it to to this experience and how important it is when you're at the lowest of lows and you need someone to reach out like it's it's so important in terms of things like suicide prevention or women's mm -hmm. health and um our well-being yeah it's it's interesting yes absolutely yeah yeah and then um taking an intersectional approach to health and well-being so there's this operates on a few levels yeah um intersectional meaning you know um all men are experiencing inequities when it comes to health and Indigenous men experience, you know, a diff even further, um, you know, uh, disengagement from and um, exclusion from from health services due to, you know, colonial policies and racism and mm -hmm. um, and other, you know, um, things that exclude them from from feeling that they can, um, you know adequately have their health and well-being addressed. So, so there's that kind of focus. And then just also understanding that, as we just talked about, that health and well-being is, is physical health, but it's also social um, connection and it's accessing, um, you know, housing and transportation and food and, um, and all of those things. So that's, you know, that it's, it's being very holistic <laughs> in terms of understanding what health and well-being is. Yeah. And then supporting the Indigenous driven um, initiatives and, and these grassroots initiatives, uh -huh. um, no matter what what city or, or area you're in. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. And then what are some opportunities for future research? I know you were talking about um, some of the work that you're doing now. Um, so maybe walk us through and uh, introduce us to, to your newer <laughs> topics or what other people can work on if you, yeah. you know, don't have all the time in the world to do it. <laughs> oh, there's so many areas. Um, <laughs> but, but one of what, what I'm really excited about doing, I think I'll just focus on one area. Um, 
well, maybe two. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm part of, um, of a health and justice research cluster at UBC. Mm. And um, there is a, um, a, a research project that I'm, that I'm on, which is looking at the importance of peer mentorship for indigenous women leaving prison. So wow. it's, um, it's that kind of first couple of days after they leave when there's a huge, um, huge vulnerability um, because that's when you most need, you know, housing and food and whatever, these immediate, um, these immediate needs. And when you're most vulnerable to, you know, falling back into the, the same old patterns or going yeah. back to places that were, not, that were not healthy for you. So, um, so that's, that's a piece of research that is looking specifically at Indigenous women's experiences, which I think is really, which has, you know, emerged to me as a really, obviously a really important thing because women are the fastest growing um, federal prison population. Um, wow. And so I, I want to do more of that work. Um, mm -hmm. At the same time, the Dudes Club has actually now moved into um, the prison setting. So there are dudes clubs now in the correctional facilities up in Prince George, um, wow. Prince George Regional Corrections. And I, I actually would really like to do some research with those men. Um, and I think, you know, this is part of that whole community continuum that I was talking about that, you know, everybody is, um, everybody is impacted by, um, you know, these, these experiences of marginalization and racism and discrimination. And, um, and it's, you know, people will be at different places with that. And I think for a lot of men, they've never had the opportunity to yeah. feel a safe kind of space. And especially men mm -hmm. who are incarcerated right now, there's right. relatively few programs and culturally relevant programs for them. So, um, so just to kind of follow their journey, um, the Dudes Club will be um, something that I would really like to do. So I guess it's continuing on this work. And then I'm also actually working um, in my own communities and I'm doing a film because I do film work as well. I'm doing a documentary yeah. film called In the Wake. And it's looking at the impacts of a dam that was built in our territory um, okay. and the cumulative impacts of resource extraction. But, but it's also about the kind of ongoing resistance that we have, um, you know, continued to, to take when it comes to our lands. And, and, and so the connection, I think, with all of this other community urban work is I really am interested in how our communities are kind of are reinstilling our cultural values on the land and how we're um, doing that work with younger generations and, and with people who maybe are coming back to the community um, kind of like I am, I'm applying for some cultural mentorship uh, funds so that I can work with our elders because I wasn't really raised in my culture to know our stories and our traditions. So it's something that, that I'm learning about as well. And, and I think that should be accessible to for sure. all of us, whether we're yeah. urban or, um, or on reserve. So it's, it's kind of, Again, I guess my, my work kind of takes place along a, a community continuum that seeks to kind of join, join us all up together rather than continue to divide, which is what colonial policies have done and continue. Yeah, and it seems as though what's really at, at the heart of this is the culture 
you know, feeding into all of these programs and being um, the center at which all of this work and, and community is um, driven mm-hmm. by. So even whether it's in a prison, whether it's in the downtown east side, whether, you know, it's um, the film like in the lake, um, whatever uh, it may be, it's that bringing that cultural aspect to all of your work and communicating with the rest of us who have no clue uh, <laughs> about any of these things and it's so important to know because I don't I don't think that it should have to be one group of people that is the ongoing resistance and and it, it really really mm-hmm. involves everyone to support um, yeah. the resistance of resource extraction for example or um, people's general health and well-being and, and access to health care and, and housing, transportation to, to live safely and in our cities um, or wherever it may be. So thank you so much. Um, any last thoughts uh, or comments before we end? Um, I don't think so. No, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity to have this conversation. I hope, um, I hope people got something out of it uh, and enjoyed listening because it was, yeah, it was a real honor to, to share with you. So masicho, as we say. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. <laughs> Bye. Bye. That's it for now. And thank you so much for listening. A big thanks to Liana for joining us on this episode. Follow the link in the show notes to read the paper we spoke about today. Be sure to share with your friends and subscribe for updates on future episodes. Feel free to contact me on Twitter at DenseCityPod to keep the conversation going. Another special thanks to Emily Huang of Watercolored by Emily for creating the artwork for this podcast. You can check out more of her work by following the link in the show notes. Another thank you to Reed Kai and Ryan Kinnear for the show music. See you next time on Dense City.